Haunted UK podcast is recorded and mixed in stereo. Listening through an environment such as stereo speakers or headphones will ensure you get the best experience. Let me quickly tell you about our official podcast sponsor, CDS Print and Design. CDS is a family-run company who offer great prices and great products such as printed t-shirts, hoodies, canvases, coasters, placemats, stickers, banners, signage and much, much more. For more information or for a free no-obligation quote, email Colin or Debbie at cdsprintanddesign at gmail.com. You can also find CDS Print and Design on Facebook and Instagram. Season 2 is almost ready to record and release, and in this season, we're going to cast our net far and wide to tell stories of UFOs, unsolved mysteries, strange creatures unexplained disappearances, as well as further tales of ghosts, poltergeists, and haunted locations. But before that, we've got Christmas 2021 to enjoy, and also a haunted UK podcast special. So let's dive in. In America... Tens of thousands of people go to national parks to enjoy the scenery, wildlife, and the awesome experience of being in the presence of natural beauty. But over the course of over a hundred years, many people have simply vanished into thin air whilst visiting these beautiful tourist attractions. Only a handful of bodies have ever been found, and those have some very disturbing and strange facts connected to their discoveries. So with the Christmas holidays upon us, Let's delve into some of the strange cases of the missing 411. This is the Christmas special of the Haunted UK podcast, and in this episode, we're going to deep dive into the stories of some of the most mysterious disappearances related to the missing 411 phenomenon. Just after 2013, a man by the name of David Politis began work on his next project, the missing 411. Polides was approached by an off-duty National Park Ranger whilst doing research. The Ranger recommended that Polides use his years of training and experience as a police detective to delve into the many thousands of missing person cases in national parks throughout the United States. A great deal of these missing person cases displayed many points of strange similarities and Polides believed that after almost six years of hard research, investigation and interviews, he had identified a truly strange phenomenon. 
But before we begin to get into some of the missing 411's most intriguing cases, let's find out a little bit more about David Polidis and the first instance that he felt that the National Park Service could be hiding or withholding critical evidence. After attending the University of San Francisco, Polidis joined the police force and in 1980 transferred to the San Jose Police Department to begin stints in the SWAT team, street crimes unit and the detectives division. In 1996, however, Polidis was charged with one count of falsely soliciting for a charity. At the time, he was working as a court liaison officer and after the charge was dismissed from the police force. Now, Polidis was a huge believer in the Bigfoot phenomenon and began to use his time researching sightings and interviewing witnesses. He wrote two books detailing his findings and also formed the North American Bigfoot Search Group to continue to collect, collate and catalogue evidence. Whilst continuing with his research in a state national park, an off-duty park ranger who knew of David Polidis' background voiced his concerns regarding the strange disappearances of individuals from national parks all over America. The ranger gave an example of a case regarding the unexplained disappearance of 14-year-old Stacy Arras, who went missing in Yosemite National Park in 1981. With the case being unsolved for around 32 years, Polidas decided to start with the National Park's office, requesting through a Freedom of Information application to see the case file for Stacy Arras's disappearance. A special agent for the National Park's office asked why David Polidas wanted the information. Polidas replied that he was performing research on National Park missing persons cases and would like to see the case file. Now this is where things start to get a little strange. The special agent confirmed that the case was not a criminal case, but a missing persons case with no suspects, no leads and no ongoing investigation. As far as Yosemite National Park's office was concerned, there was nothing of interest in this case. Polidis then requested that the special agent send him a copy of the case file and reports, to which he was told that because it was still an open case, he would never get to see the file. Polidis argued that he had many copies of case files from National Park's departments, all of which were still open and live cases. The special agent, however, challenged Polidas by denying the fact that the National Park's office would never furnish anyone with copies of open case files. Polidas again asked for confirmation that the Stacey Arras case didn't have any suspects, that it wasn't currently being investigated and that it hadn't been investigated for decades. The special agent confirmed these points again saying, that this was simply a missing persons case, but that Polidas would never get to see the file. So what was so special about this case file? Why wouldn't the special agent release the documents? The conversation ended with Polidas being completely baffled as to why the National Parks Office would deny a Freedom of Information Act request for a case file which was a straightforward missing persons case. Polidas went to the next level and got his local congressman, Ian Campbell, to try and influence the National Parks Office to release the case file. K. 
Campbell's representative in Washington set up a meeting with a member of the Department of the Interior, but this still didn't sway a positive decision. And to this day, the file has never been released, not even to Stacey Aris's own family. This is where the missing 411 phenomenon began to take shape. So let's go back to 1981 and go through the Stacey Aris disappearance. It's the 25th of July, and Stacy is part of a horse riding trip to an area of Yosemite called Sunrise Meadows. With her is her father, George, and six other individuals. The planned trip is due to last a few days, with them riding up to cabins in an area known as the Sunrise High Sierra Camp. After an overnight stay, they would then move on to a trail called the High Sierra Camp Loop. The group arrived and quickly settled in, with Stacy changing clothes and wanting to check out some of the many trails in the area and take photographs. After deciding to take a short trail which led to a nearby lake, she asked her father whether he wanted to accompany her, but he decided to stay put at camp and relax for a while. 77-year-old Gerald Stewart offered to hike to the lake along with Stacy, and the pair headed off. After around 20 minutes, Gerald needed to take a breather and sat down on a large boulder to rest up. Stacy said that she would go ahead for a little while and return for Gerald. Members of the group who were still at camp and at a higher elevation saw Gerald sit down and Stacy continue her hike behind trees. After a little while, Stacy still hadn't returned. But the weather was good, and people in her group just thought that she was at the lake taking photos. A few people decided to hike the trail and see what she was up to, so they all set off, fully expecting to bump into Stacy either on the trail or by the lake. As the group hiked further down the path, it became clear that something was wrong. More hikers descended onto the trail and towards the lake, and groups were passing each other, but there was no sign of Stacy. It was as if she had simply disappeared into thin air. Panic now began to set in, with groups of hikers choosing to search the woodlands around the meadow and the trail where she was last seen. Searchers were shouting Stacy's name, and the only thing that was found after an hour of searching was the lens cap from Stacy's camera. The decision was taken to call in authorities, and immediately after they arrived, a huge search was organised and implemented involving around 150 people, including park rangers, mountain rescue volunteers and tracker dogs. Even helicopters were drafted in to help with the search, but nothing was found. The dogs couldn't pick up a scent. No tracks were found. No belongings or clothes. No blood or remains. Nothing at all. It wasn't as if bad weather was hindering the search effort either, because it was quite a bright and sunny day. So how could a healthy, fit and excited 14-year-old girl simply disappear from a trail that was approximately a mile and a half long, with no sound or evidence of any type of struggle, and no trace of any belongings or clothes? An animal attack would have surely provided some sort of evidence. If Stacy had planned to run away, 
Why do it wearing flip-flops and taking no supplies or clothing with her? Even to this day, the case remains cold, with no further leads or findings. So with so many other cases like this, David Polidis asked the National Parks Office for a list of all the people who had gone missing in Yosemite Park. They said that they don't keep a list of missing persons, but if Polidis wanted a list, they would happily put one together for around the cost of $34,000. A little bit shocked, David asked how much for a list of missing persons from all American national parks. They replied with a cost of $1.4 million. Obviously, Polidis didn't have that amount of money, but more importantly, couldn't understand why such a list didn't exist in the first place. So, after literally decades of research, interviews, and time out in the field, David Polidis feels that he has exposed an extremely strange phenomenon, which has a number of characteristics shared across the whole spectrum of these disappearances. Also, he claimed that many of these strange disappearances occurred in the same areas in clusters. This then raises the question that if these people go missing in similar areas in these national parks, what could be responsible? Before we get into some of the possible explanations for these mysterious cases, let's explore some more of these missing 411 type stories. In 1969, six-year-old Dennis Martin was on a camping trip with the male members of his family. This was a yearly tradition that took place around Father's Day, and this was to be Dennis's first camping trip. The destination was the Great Smoky Mountains National Park, which wasn't too far from where the Martin family lived in Knoxville. The plan was to hike to Cades Cove, and then move on to Russell Field. The group who consisted of Dennis, his father, grandfather and older brother would camp overnight and then head further onto a highland meadow called Spence Field, which was another popular campsite and also a spot where they could join the famous Appalachian Trail. As they arrived at Spence Field, there were already a number of families either setting up camp or already settled in. Dennis and his older brother wanted to play with some of the other kids and their father agreed and let them both go. The group of children were preparing to play a prank on some of the other campers by hiding in bushes and jumping out to scare them. Dennis's father watched the two boys as they followed the other children into the bushes, readying themselves for the next group of adults to scare. The children suddenly burst out of the bushes, but Dennis didn't. He didn't appear. Dennis's father and grandfather stood up and made their way over to the bushes to search for him, but there was no sign. Whilst others at the campsite carried on searching, Dennis's father ran two miles along the trail, shouting his son's name. Meanwhile, his grandfather hiked back to Cade's Cove to alert the authorities, arriving at the ranger's station at around 8.30pm. A search of immense proportions was quickly organised, with National Park Service personnel, National Guard troops, and even American Green Berets getting involved. Approximately a staggering 1,400 people were involved in searching for Dennis, and up to a point, the sheer amount of people could have hampered the chances of finding him. 
many trails were walked over multiple times, destroying any tracks, scents or footprints. However, a set of tracks were discovered and were thought to have been made by a child wearing only one shoe. This set of tracks were followed until they stopped at the banks of a stream. This discovery was enforced three days later when a shoe and sock were found, which belonged to Martin. For the next two weeks, searches continued in all weather and over all terrain, but no other trace of Dennis was found. The case went completely cold, even with a reward of $5,000. Calls came in from psychics who claimed to know Dennis's whereabouts, as well as members of the public who had allegedly seen someone resembling Dennis's appearance, but none of the calls ever came to anything. Season tracker and park ranger Dwight McCarter was brought in to try and shed any light on the disappearance. He had successfully tracked down literally hundreds of missing persons, including many young children, but he was completely stumped by this mystery. Even he admitted that it was incredibly strange for there to be absolutely no tracks or trace of the boy at all. One strange lead came from members of the Key family, who were in the area at the time of Dennis's disappearance. On the evening that Dennis went missing, the family alleged that they heard the scream of what they thought was a child. Shortly after this, they saw a hair-covered, disheveled large, quotes, bear man, with what they said was something the size of a child slung over its shoulder. Whatever this thing was, the Key family said that it travelled through the undergrowth and up a large forested hill with no trouble. Even though this sighting was reported, authorities never followed up on it. Dennis has never been found. No trace of him. No clothes, no remains, no tracks have ever been discovered. The missing 411 phenomenon isn't just limited to children and teenagers. Our next story delves into the disappearance of an adult. An adult who not only knew the area he was in, but was also an experienced outdoorsman and hunter. 38-year-old Aaron Joseph Hedges went missing on the 7th of September 2014 in an area known as the Crazy Mountains or the Crazies. The name of the mountains comes from a tale from a woman whose family was murdered by Native American Indians while she was away. When the killers returned a week later, the woman came screaming from her settlement, swinging the tomahawk that was used to kill her eldest son. She single-handedly attacked and backed the Indians up with her ferocious rage. She then fled into the forest, never to be seen again. But after that time, she was known as the Crazy Woman, hence the Crazy Mountains. The 3rd of September 2014 saw three friends, Greg Leitner, Joe Depew and Aaron Joseph Hedges on a hunting trip in the Crazies. They made their way from Cottonwood Lake Trailhead with a destination in mind of Campfire Lake. The three men had two horses and a mule who were carrying most of their supplies and all was going well and to plan until, for some inexplicable reason, the mule became spooked by something and threw its load, including Aaron's sleeping bag, off the trail. The items were too inaccessible to be recovered, but all wasn't lost, 
as the men had an emergency cache of supplies stored at a hunting camp which they had used before. Extra sleeping bags were part of this cache. It just needed someone to hike up to the camp, collect the supplies and return to the group. It was now the 5th of September and Aaron decided that he would take the hike up to the cache and then return in a few hours to Greg and Joe at their current position. Aaron set off with a walkie-talkie, mobile phone and a firearm and a hunting bow and was fully expecting to be back with his friends before nightfall. The trek was a matter of a few miles each way, so it wasn't a problem for an experienced outdoorsman like Aaron. Little did Greg and Joe realise that this would be the last time they would ever see Aaron Hedges alive again. As they watched Aaron disappear off into the woods, Greg and Joe secured the horses, mule and supplies and waited for their friend's return. Nighttime came and there was no sign of Aaron. Multiple calls on the walkie-talkies and to Aaron's mobile phone proved fruitless. There was no answer at all. After looking at their GPS, which was connected to all the walkie-talkies, they found that Aaron had appeared to have missed a fork in the trail which would have taken him to the emergency hunting supplies cache. His current position was in a completely different area of the screen. The decision was taken to wait until daylight for Aaron to return, but he didn't. Greg and Joe searched the area for a further two days before finally contacting the authorities and reporting Aaron missing. Search and rescue teams were brought in and the area was scoured with a fine tooth comb, with additional help of helicopters with specialist infrared cameras, tracking dog teams and rangers on horseback. Apart from some snowfall, the search teams were pretty unhampered, but couldn't find anything. On the second day of the search, a number of items were found in an area east of Sunlight Lake. Aaron's water bladder, the waist straps off his backpack, his shoes and cigarettes were all in an area where it looked like someone had tried to start a fire. A few strange things were noted at the site of this discovery, including the fact that his boots were placed neatly next to each other as if they'd been taken off after a long hike. Why would you take off your boots in freezing temperatures and snow? Also, the location where all of these items were discovered had been searched the previous day, and nothing was found. Tracker dogs still couldn't pick up any scent of Aaron, which was odd in itself, but those items that were found on day two of the search effort were all that would be discovered until nine months later. Now this case of the missing 411 phenomenon is already weird, but it's about to get even weirder. So, it's now June 2015, and we're at the Rain Anchor Ranch where Roger Bassaniowicz is staying with relatives. He decided to get out for a hike up to the peak of a nearby ridge. As he got to the top, he noticed a collection of outdoor items set down on the trail neatly piled up against a tree. These included a backpack with a mobile phone inside, as well as an orange hunting vest, other items of clothing, granola bar wrappers, a hunting license and a hunting bow. Further up the ridge was also a thermos cup sat upright next to an open energy drink. Roger could see nobody else even remotely close to the trail or to the ridge top. 
So where did all these items come from? How did they get there? And most importantly, whose were they? After going through the backpack in more detail, Roger discovered a driving license which belonged to Aaron Joseph Hedges. He also checked the hunting license and this also belonged to Aaron. Roger got to an area where he could contact authorities and reported his findings. Police and park rangers devoured this new lead, but the case ran cold yet again. All of these items appearing literally from nowhere, but no body and no remains. Another full year went by when Sweetgrass County Sheriff's Office was contacted by a landowner who had discovered human remains on his property. Police attended the scene and after tests, they confirmed that these remains were indeed that of Aaron Joseph Hedges. The eerie thing about this discovery was that if this was where Aaron finally died, he was in full view of a nearby ranch as well as a popular and frequently used road. But nobody saw him. These two locations in the area would have spelt safety and survival. Yet for some strange reason, Aaron never made it to either. There was also no evidence found on any of the remains of an animal attack. So this was one plausible explanation straight out of the window. Let's also go into the locations of where all of these items were found in relation to each other. Aaron's remains were found around half a mile away from where Roger Bessianowicz had discovered Aaron's backpack and other things. This was a full 15 miles away from where Aaron was last seen by his companions, Greg Leitner and Joe Depew, and a further 6 miles away from where Aaron's neatly arranged boots were found. Let's also not forget that snow had fallen, temperatures had plummeted and terrain between the locations of these discoveries wasn't the easiest to navigate through, especially without boots. Other things within this whole case simply don't make sense. How could Aaron miss the fork on the trail which led to the emergency cache in the first place? He had a fully working GPS, yet seemed to walk straight past it. The discovery of the boots, along with a makeshift campsite, also needs questions asking of it. How could Aaron have stayed at this location all night and then hiked off six miles without being seen by searchers or tracked by dogs and not even leave any tracks at all? Remember, there were over 20 dog tracking teams involved in this search, but not one of them could pick up a scent or a track. How is this possible? The discovery of the backpack and other items by Roger Bessianowicz also raises even more questions. So, imagine for a moment that Aaron has somehow evaded discovery by search and rescue, has stayed in the wild for months, with no boots, in cold conditions, and then decides to have an energy drink, pour it into his thermos cup, then strip out of his clothes, navigate back down the ridge and die in full view of the owners of a working ranch and also in full view of a busy road. All of this just simply doesn't make sense. Every missing person case is tragic and, to the families and friends of the missing individual, it must be like living in a nightmare. When they're never found, closure is something that will probably never come, but when remains are found, that's a completely different set of emotions. How did they die? Were they in pain? Did they suffer? 
the missing 411 stories end up churning out more questions than answers because of the strange set of circumstances surrounding every individual case. Why did this person act in a particular way? Why did they decide to do this instead of that? What thought process led them to choose to go in a direction which makes no sense? How could the people around them not notice they had gone? Our last missing 411 story involves another child and took place on the 2nd of October 1999. Three-year-old Jared Atadero was out on a hike with his six-year-old sister and 11 other adults. The adults were part of a Christian singles network group who were staying at a resort by the Powdery River. The resort was owned by Jared's father, Alan, and his twin brother, Arlen. Jared and his sister were desperate to go on the hike, and after persuading their father to let them go, they made their way out to join the group. This was where things started to go wrong. Initially, Jared's father only agreed to let his son and daughter go on the hike because the adults had said they were only going as far as a fishing hatchery. But they changed their minds. Instead, they decided to go on a hike 15 miles to the west of the resort, up the Big South Trail. The Big South Trail is located in the Comanche Peak Wilderness, around 8,440 feet above sea level. It eventually crosses into the Rocky Mountain National Park after a distance of about 11 miles. Approximately one and a half miles down the trail, Jared ran ahead of the group and bumped into two fishermen who were happy to speak to the young boy. They both noticed that a large group of adults were making their way along the trail towards them and Jared, so they weren't concerned at all. By this time, the 11 adults had split into a quicker and slower group and were becoming further apart from each other. The fishermen last saw Jared heading off down the trail towards the second of 16 campsites, which were scattered along the 11-mile pathway. Now at this point, it's difficult to confirm whether Jared was between the quicker and slower group or ahead of both of them, but this was the moment he simply disappeared. Investigators were later told that a few of the group members heard a scream. When asked to describe the scream, they reportedly said that it sounded like a playful scream, as if someone was playing tag. As the now two groups continued along the trail, they quickly realised that Jared was missing. They searched for approximately an hour, whilst two of the group members made their way back to the resort to inform Jared's father, Alan, that there may be a problem. After being told that his son had gone missing, Alan got into his truck straight away and drove to the trailhead as quickly as possible to begin searching. As you would expect, Alan was completely panic-stricken and distraught. After running down the trail, Alan realised that this was going to need a much bigger search effort, so ran back to the trailhead to call his resort manager. He instructed him to immediately contact the Larimer County Sheriff's Office. Representatives from the Sheriff's Office, as well as the county search and rescue team, arrived quickly and began to organise a search plan. Bill Nelson, who was with the Sheriff's Office, was in charge of the operation and was fully convinced that they would find Jared safe and sound. As darkness swept over the area and midnight approached, Nelson told searchers that he was going to take a quick sleep in his truck and they were to wake him as soon as the boy was found. Morning came, Nelson woke up and Jared was still missing. 
Nelson was now beginning to get very worried about the boy's safety, as being alone in the woods throughout the night, this would start to narrow down the possibility of the search effort succeeding in finding Jared. The following day, a search helicopter made its way to the area to help out with the effort. It had just refuelled at Fort Collins Loveland Municipal Airport, and over a section of the Big South Trail, it ran into difficulties because of the weight of the fuel and the height that it was flying at. It couldn't generate enough lift and ended up stalling and crashing down onto the trail. Whilst there were some serious injuries to the four-man crew, they were all rescued and survived. It seemed that luck was running completely against them. On top of all this, reporters and television broadcast trucks began appearing with television anchors and film crews wandering around trying to get as much information as possible. All of these additional people were, quite simply, getting in the way and hampering investigators and search and rescue teams. As the disappearance entered its third day, search crews and divers expanded their efforts by getting down to the riverbanks, pools and ponds that had formed over time, also up steep slopes and over boulder fields, but still, no trace was found. According to police at the site, the longer that this case went on, the more likely it seemed that abduction was becoming a more real possibility. But who or what could have taken Jared? A mountain lion attack and abduction was one theory that was at the forefront of many investigators' minds. A mountain lion was more than capable of killing and moving a three-year-old boy, and there were previous cases of just this type of thing happening. In Idaho Springs, an 18-year-old man was attacked and killed in 1991, as well as a 10-year-old boy who was also killed by a mountain lion in 1997 in the nearby Rocky Mountain National Park. The only thing that cast doubt on the animal attack theory was that there was no evidence of blood or remains anywhere. As the search effort got to a week, the sheriff's office decided to call it off. The public were encouraged to continue searching, but were told to be extremely careful. Conspiracy theories started to rear up, as well as the possibility of one of the Christian singles group who were on the trail with Jared at the time abducting him. All of the group were questioned by authorities, but no red flags appeared. And besides, how could one of them have snatched Jared in such a short time frame without anyone seeing anything at all? The trail also went through a narrow canyon that on the day of Jared's disappearance had sections covered in snow. Members of the search team hiked up to these sections and there were no tracks in the snow at all. Either side of the trail was around a 45 degree slope with elevation of around 2,000 feet and the terrain was extremely tough with fallen trees, thick woodland and boulders. Not the best escape route for either a three-year-old boy or for someone trying to carry a three-year-old boy. The case went completely cold and Jared's father would have to live every day in the apartment which he shared with his son feeling lost, helpless and immensely guilty. Months turned to years and whilst the search had stopped, the nasty side of the human spirit remained, with hoaxes. A woman was charged for making numerous claims, stating that she knew the person who had abducted Jared. Calls came in from members of the public with reports of sightings and a Californian man was arrested and charged for claiming that he was Jared even when DNA test results proved otherwise. The same man was also arrested in Douglas County, 
which was near to where Jared lived, for violating his restraining order. It's impossible to feel what Jared's father, Alan, was going through, but to have this kind of horrible behaviour from other human beings, piled on top of an already tragic situation, it really beggars belief. Fast forward now to June 2003. Businessmen and hiking friends Gary Watts and Rob Osborne were on the Big South Trail when they decided to take an off-trail route. Their hike took them up a slope around 500 feet above the main trail when they came across a white Tarzan tennis shoe. They then found the second shoe, then a brown fleece jacket and blue sweatpants. The hiking partners noted that the sweatpants were inside out. Also, one of the legs was missing, but this was put down to birds using the material for their nests. Gary Watson, Rob Osborne, had a bad feeling that they had just found the clothing of Jared Atadero. The tennis shoes were very puzzling, as they looked like they had just been bought from a store, and not like they had been left out in the elements for four years. Gary and Rob collected the clothing using a bread bag after photographing the clothing in its location. They then took their discovery to the sheriff's office. Search and rescue made their way to the area the next day and discovered more clothing in an area approximately 25 feet square. Eleven days later, the discovery that Jared's father, Alan, never wanted to be made, was made. A skullcap and a molar were found. DNA tests have since proved 100% that these remains are Jared's. The area was apparently never searched, and when the helicopter crashed, it was simply missed. Further tests on the clothing didn't reveal anything else about Jared's cause of death, and to this day, his death certificate states, quote, undetermined, probable mountain lion attack, end quotes. So what possible explanation or explanations could there be to give reason to all of this mystery? Possible animal attacks? Illegal poaching? Bigfoot? Alien abduction? How about a serial killer? Or could this simply be a case of someone getting lost, confused, and then falling foul of the elements? David Politis is very guarded when it comes to his opinion of the possible cause of all of these disappearances, but because of his background firmly rooted in the possibility of the existence of Bigfoot, it does seem that he leans towards a cryptoid-type suspect. Skeptics argue that there are thousands of missing persons cases in national parks, but that David Politis cherry-picks the ones which have a few elements that seem a little strange. He then magnifies these elements to purposely enhance the mystery a mystery that may not actually be there at all. Whichever side of the argument and belief you come down on, what cannot be denied is that there are indeed some extremely strange and hard to explain points in all of these cases. But most importantly of all, we must never forget that these were real people and children who lost their lives, who stepped onto trails in areas of natural beauty to never be seen again. Maybe that's the real tragedy that we should always remember. Well, we've come to the end of the Christmas episode of the Haunted UK podcast, and I'd like to wish you all a brilliant Christmas and a great New Year. 
But before I go for the last time in 2021, I'd like to give a few shout-outs. And the first one is to all of you, the listeners. Thank you so much for following, subscribing and listening. None of this would be possible without all of you. The show is available on all major platforms, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Breaker, Pocket Casts and Radio Public. Wherever possible, leaving a positive five-star review helps the show in many ways. Listener figures are rising rapidly, and that's all down to you. So a huge thanks to you all. Another shout-out goes to the show's sponsor, CDS Print and Design, who have been kind enough to come back for a second season. Huge thanks to both Colin and Debbie. This next shout-out goes to some amazing podcasts out there which, if you're looking for fantastic content and shows that will keep you engaged for episode after episode, then these will definitely keep you entertained for hours. These podcasts are Red-Handed, Astonishing Legends, The Strange Sessions, The Salty Speculation Podcast, Fool and Scholar Productions Podcasts, Pineapple Pizza Podcast, Killing, Missing, Hidden the Haunted Housewives, Keep It Weird, the Mystery of Life podcast, and from the Parcast Network, which is now exclusively only on Spotify, Conspiracy Theories, Extraterrestrial, Gone, and Unexplained Mysteries. Next up is a request to all you listeners out there. Have you seen a ghost? Witnessed poltergeist activity? Had a strange, unexplained paranormal experience? Have you ever stayed in a haunted location or experienced something frightening on a ghost tour? Even better, do you live or work in a haunted house or building? Have you encountered or seen a UFO? Heard a story about an unsolved disappearance or mystery? Or have you been lucky enough to witness a strange, unknown creature? If you have, then your story could feature on Season 2's Listener Stories finale episode. Simply type up your story and email it to hauntedukpodcast at hotmail.com. That's hauntedukpodcast at hotmail.com. It's easy to do, and if you like, you can remain anonymous. Huge thanks in advance to you all. Besides writing, recording, mixing and mastering this podcast, I also run a mixing and mastering studio called Pink Flamingo Music Productions. If you have a podcast or piece of music that you'd like mixing, mastering or both, or if you'd like a piece of finished music written for a project that you're working on, then please email the studio with details of your inquiry to pinkflamingo.musicproductions at hotmail.com. That's pinkflamingo.musicproductions at hotmail.com. It's nowhere near as expensive as you'd think. This podcast was recorded at Pink Flamingo Music Production Studio in Hales Owen in the West Midlands, England. For a full list of research sources that helped immensely with the content of this episode, please refer to the show's notes. Thank you all so much again for listening, and we'll be back very soon with another episode. Until then, stay safe and take care.